0: Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Emma Williams. And I'm Chloe Prendergast. We're so glad you've joined us today. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and have created this podcast in our search to find fun new ways to share and talk about music we love. Each episode we explore a different piece of music through the eyes
1: of a guest musician. Um, So it's actually been a little while since we've uh, published an episode. The past weeks have been a little funny with opposite schedules for concerts and things. First I had some quartet concerts, one of which was sponsored by Music Box, so Emma and I put that one on together. Then it's super fun. It was super fun. Um, then Emma had some concerts, rehearsals and concerts, and then as soon as that finished then I went into some rehearsals and a recording session. Anyway, here we are, and we are really happy to be back with you all. And
0: we have some really fun episodes
1: coming up that we're
0: really excited to share with you, so stay tuned. (laughs) Whee!
1: Um, We want to start by saying a huge thank you to everyone who's already donated to our shiny new PayPal. You people are awesome, and we really appreciate the support so we can keep this thing going, and also so we can pay our lovely editing assistant, Joanna Neuschatz. We would love for you to consider donating what you feel this podcast is worth to you in relation to what you have, um, and you can do that by heading to paypal.me slash musicboxconcerts, which we will link in the show notes. Okay, so today's guest
0: is Italian multi-instrumentalist Francesco Terezzi. So he plays lots of different keyboard instruments, percussion instruments, accordion, and probably many, many more that we don't even know about. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've run into him a lot over the years, and uh, just at concerts, and just by virtue of being in the music scene together. And today he's actually brought something a little different, and it is the music of the 16th and 17th centuries, where the melodies were written over repeated bass lines, um, and that's actually called ostinato
1: bass lines. We do our best to define the relevant music-y terms throughout this chat. Like ostinato, for instance. (laughs) (laughs) But because this is our world and we're human, there will be things that we miss. So please let us know what these are, and we will be sure to clarify them in future episodes.
0: And don't worry about trying to remember the pieces and recordings we talk about. They are in the show notes, along with a link to a Spotify playlist, so you can go back and listen to all the pieces from this podcast yourself. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy our chat with Francesco.
1: Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Hello. (laughs) How are you?
2: I'm good. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, great. (laughs) Um, So on this podcast, we uh, actually get people to introduce themselves. So can you introduce yourself for everyone?
2: Yeah. Hi, my name is Francesco Turrisi. I am uh, a musician, I suppose. Uh, Play a few different instruments, own a lot of instruments, and uh, kind of like to jump around from in a few different styles of music, I suppose. I also write some music and, uh, yeah, so that's what I do.
0: Yeah, I'm like a jack of all trades. Sort of. Sort of? <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you can do a lot of things.
2: <laughs> we, I have feet in a lot of different shoes, as we say in Italian.
0: Oh, yeah, right. Okay. And you're based in Ireland. Um, so how... How's it going in, in Ireland? I, we see that you've been doing um, a lot of espresso uh, experiments during quarantine.
2: <laughs> yes, I've been been doing a lot of cooking uh, experiments. I think the coffee is a little bit... I just bought a new coffee machine, basically. Nice. <laughs> yes. I guess... Uh, I mean, you know, I was always into cooking before and stuff like that, but uh, having the time that I've never had before, I guess, sort of... a. Uh, um, Made me want to focus a little bit more on certain things, you know. And uh, the coffee, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a related thing. Obviously, being Italian, uh, I didn't actually drink coffee for a couple of years. What? But uh, <laughs> I know, and you know what? It's just because mostly it was a combination of things. I'm not a really good sleeper in general, mm. so I thought I'd try to stop it for a while and see if it would make a difference. Uh, but did it? <laughs> Not in a way that I can really pinpoint. I mean, you know, I, I okay. never really <laughs> drank a huge amount of coffee, you know. So yeah. um, one of the other issues, just being on the road all the time, I just couldn't stand the terrible coffee anymore. <laughs> so yeah, I'm basically giving up on it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're a little bit spoiled coming from Italy. You I know. Having to travel and have bad, like, concert hall coffee. It's <laughs> just,
2: it's so weird because it's everywhere you go now, literally everywhere, they have like all these fancy Italian coffee machines and nobody I swear nobody can use them and it's like everything else it's not that difficult actually it's not that difficult (laughs) like a lot of things about Italian food are not that difficult it's just about having really good ingredients and know the basic skills It's actually really not complicated so I I never understand why it doesn't work but there is a story that a friend of mine was reminding me that I've forgotten where once I once went into an Irish place and I made my own coffee into a, into a cafe in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> really? Yes. Which apparently was hilarious. But uh, anyway.
1: <laughs> were they chill with that? <laughs> they were like fine?
2: They obviously led me. I, I didn't even remember. But this friend of mine reminded me of this story. It was years and years ago after a week in the middle of nowhere in you know, in Ireland and the frustration of <laughs> coffee. But anyway. <laughs> No, it's actually i mean you know it's it's simple but it does require a bit of skill so i'm trying to learn you know a little bit there's so many moving parts like you know the grind of the coffee and also every bean is different a roast you know all this kind of stuff i find it actually easier to make a cappuccino than to make an espresso to be honest but anyway i don't know if this is what we're supposed to talk about
0: (laughs) we don't care this is interesting to us it's very
1: interesting Um and today you've decided to do something that's a little different than what we've usually been doing on this podcast and um bring in the sort of general concept of an ostinato baseline. Can you start by defining what that is?
2: Well, I thought, you know, because as I was saying before, I'm not really a straight ahead classical musician, you know. And so I didn't really train 100% in classical music, if you know what I mean. We can talk a little bit about that um as we go, but for me, the idea of just picking a piece of repertoire, it's interesting because obviously there's a lot of music that I love and you know that we could talk about. But I thought it would be more interesting to uh, talk about how I got into early music. I'm actually trained as a jazz musician. That's what I started in conservatory and then got into early music. And I studied classical piano, of course, as well. But I got into the idea of early music through improvisation.
0: So Francesco just mentioned getting into early music, so for him in this conversation, he's referring to a specific specialisation in 16th and 17th century music, where the performers look at the historical context of the music and play on instruments of the time. And we definitely won't go into the nitty gritties of comparing the more general classical to early music to jazz genres, but let's just say that Francesco has a wide range of musical education under his belt and a special interest in improvisation. This is where the performer literally makes up the music on the spot, which we'll also talk about throughout this conversation. The early music world is also where we spend most of our time, so that's why Francesco is talking to us about these specifics so casually.
2: While studying jazz in, in The Hague, actually, uh, the place that you guys know well. Um, oh, yeah, we do. <laughs> I kind of started uh, flirting a bit with the early music department with this idea of uh, improvisation, you know? Because people started saying, you know, there is a lot of improvisation in early music, and I was like, really? Is yeah. <laughs> <He's> there?
0: <laughs> Are you sure?
2: <laughs> so I kind of, you know, I got interested, and, um, and I met actually one of the harpsichord teacher, Patrick Ayrton, um, through um, a common friend, and she said, oh, you should uh, meet this guy because I think you will guy like it. You guys will like each other, and you have similar approach to a lot of the ideas. So. Me and Patrick started hanging out, basically. It wasn't really an official type of lesson. It was more like show me some jazz chords and I show you some continual and then we go for beers. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. the type of yeah. <laughs> that was the type of class that we would do, you know um so you know it started with that idea, and for me, it was very interesting because I didn't really at the beginning I didn't know the language very well. You know, and we can talk about improvisation, we can talk about languages, because there's a lot of similarities, according to me, at least.
0: How do you think about improvising?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I often, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I still think it works. You know, I often talk about improvisation as the idea of learning a language, Mm -hmm. you know, so, for example, right now, I'm improvising. Right? I didn't prepare a speech.
3: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would be
2: pretty poor if I did prepare it. No, but, uh, and, I, and I'm also speaking a language, which I learned as an adult, you know, it's not my native yeah. tongue. So the idea is I'm improvising, um, I'm constructing sentences that make sense. Um, and I think with music, it's very similar. When you learn to improvise, you have to kind of start in a very specific musical language. So in the same way, when you learn a language, you start from very simple vocabulary, you which you simply learn by heart, right? And simple constructions like whatever, my name is Francesca, you know, and you do the same way and you practice it and you practice it until you know these structures. And then, of course, with time, you know, but it takes years, you get to a point where you're able to create structures on the spot without having to think about it, which are not something that you, you know, practice or preconceived prepared at home you know which is kind of what's happening right now so i i still see very much a comparison in that so you could say okay i want to learn um when i say a language i mean something that is quite specific because say if you want to learn the late 16th century diminution you know Vocabulary, that kind of language is a very specific thing, which takes like a lifetime if you really want to do it properly. And that's just one little aspect, you know, like you can also learn to improvise in a Mozart style. But, you know, each one of these languages you have to approach, like if it was a language, if you want to learn to speak Spanish really well, you have to work on it for years. So I always find that improvisation is interesting because it's comparable to spoken mediapi language like what we're doing now, right? Yeah. At the same time, if I were to give a speech, you know, if I were to give a speech in front of an audience, I would probably write down, you know, most people would do, which is kind of a similar idea to composing, I think, you know. You could also do a combination of the two, which I've something that appeals me a lot, you know, the idea of I can think of a structure of what to say, but then there is still a certain idea of improvised or slightly getting a feeling from the room, you know.
1: Or the, the connections that you have like general key points or whatever, and then you, you improvise the yeah,
2: exactly. connections
1: so that, between them. Or so whatever. that you're
2: actually not reading there on the spot. You know, you're not It's not an interpretation of a script. It's something yeah. that feels a little bit... It's also the other difference is I made that speech, you know? So I'm just kind of trying to translate all of this into music because I think it, it's very interesting because this is more or less how jazz musicians still think nowadays. And this is how I think musicians were in the seventeenth century, in the late sixteenth century, in the early seventeenth century, for sure. They were all writing their own music. A lot of the things that they wrote had a quality of, it's a, it's an idea, but we add a lot as we perform. And they were also really all amazing improvisers, you know, and you know to recreate that kind of space nowadays, I think is very hard for performers, you know. Yeah, yeah it can be. Um. Does that make sense? Yeah,
3: yes, definitely. Um,
1: but also, can I go back and ask you to now go back and define what an ostinato bass is? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine.
2: I talked for an hour and never said that.
1: <laughs> no, it's all good.
2: <laughs> well, I guess an ostinato bass line, it's um, a kind of a recurring uh, pattern, of chords, you could say, or a bass line, which serves as a foundation for either an improvisation or a composition
1: So yeah, ostinato directly translates from Italian as stubborn, which makes sense considering it's a series of bass notes or chords repeated over and over throughout the whole piece. The bass doesn't actually have to be a double bass, it just means the foundation or the lowest instruments in the group, creating this repeating pattern. The most famous ostinato bass line that you probably know is Pachelbel's Canon, which is used for pretty much every wedding ever. (laughs) In the recording, we are about to play for you the cello and organ in this piece repeat the same eight notes over and over the whole time while the violins play melodies over the top.
0: There are so many different types of ostinato basslines that it would be impossible to tell you about all of them, but there were some that became very popular in the 16th and 17th centuries that had specific names. Throughout the episode, we refer to the basslines by their specific names, so we'll give you examples of each of them now. We'll start with this funky one called the Chacona. <laughs>
1: The Pasicalia, which we talked about in Julia Wedman's episode, is more melancholic.
0: The Folia baseline for some reason reminds me of parts of the Caribbean.
1: And finally, the Pasamezzo.
2: I think originally a lot of these ostinatos came from dance, probably from more folky kind of music, uh, and they became very popular with uh, composers. So there, there is a life of it which we will never know about, which is all the improvised stuff that probably happened then. And then there is a whole life of stuff that got written by composers because these themes and these bass lines were so popular that it became kind of fashionable, you know. So just before we, I wanted to say something else. I mean, this is going to be editing nightmare already for you guys. It's fine. (laughs) Just something about the nature of improvisation, because I think there is a lot of uh, mystification of this concept of improvisation. They immediately go, I can't do it. I don't have it. You were born with it, which is (laughs) ridiculous, you know? Because I think that in the same way, if you can talk like you're doing now, you can also improvise. Yeah. It's as simple as that, but nobody was born with it. Nobody was born with Spanish or English, you know, if, if you're learning a different language. So it's not God's whispering in your ear, something. It's really not that. It's actually a practice. Or devils. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or both. That's the best yeah, kind. Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so then how did you learn the language of improvisation? Like how? why did that become such a big part of your life if, you know, we're not born with it? What What's your journey
2: um, with that? I suppose, I mean, if I just go quickly through my musical uh, life, early musical life, I mean, I, I come from a really non-musical family. There were no musicians whatsoever in my family. Um, so when I said I wanted to be a musician, they all thought I lost my mind.
3: Okay. Um, <laughs>
2: but there was a piano at home, because I think at some stage, my dad kind of for fun, wanted to learn a bit the piano. So I started when I was in middle school, because in Italy, that's the first time you get music lessons. So it's kind of, you know, I don't know if, if you have middle school. You have in the States should be kind of similar 11, yeah. 11 to 13, yeah. that kind of thing. And I, I started kind of tinkling a little bit and my mom seemed to think that I liked it. And she got me a teacher and the teacher wanted me to go to the conservatory. But my parents were like, no, 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 we just want you to do this, you know, as a hobby, that kind of idea. But anyway, I did it for a couple of years, and I was quite bored, to be honest, because I think also back then in Italy, a lot of the teachers were very much teaching kids like adults, you know? So there's a, in the curriculum in Italy for conservatory, it was really terribly boring. So I, I kind of quit piano, and I got into guitars, and I sort of taught myself to play guitar, and I played rock guitar in rock bands in school, that kind of thing, you know? Long air? And yeah, long hair and uh checker shirts and stuff, you know. Yeah, uh, excellent. It was uh, gr- grunge times, you know, and things like that. Um you guys are too young anyway for this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we know it existed. It, it existed. <laughs> but anyway. It makes me feel old now. <laughs> no, anyway. Um where were we? Yes, so I, I kind of learned by ear and I got a little bit started improvising on the guitar. You know, it was more like a rocky, bluesy type of thing, you know, playing fairly simple, you know, progressions and improvisation. But that mentality started there, you know, and then transversely, I got interested into jazz and realized that it was quite hard to just sort of get away with, you know, improvising simple pentatonic scales and stuff like that. So I just realized that I needed to sit down and start to understand a little bit more about this music and learn a little bit more and you know so the the, the first language that you could say I really learn is more like sort of classic jazz or bebop you know it's a specific musical language which is quite complex actually you know that's the first thing that I kind of got into you know in terms of improvising Later, I mean, I obviously learned some more other different styles of jazz. And, you know, I think what I learned from that is the approach, you know, you know, the same way that if you have learned Spanish and if you want to learn Italian, of course, they are related languages, so it's easier. But the more languages, you know, the better you are learning languages in a way, because I think your brain has a structure for you to analyze and understand how to operate, you know, at least that's how I feel.
1: Definitely. Definitely. I think that's true,
2: yeah. So it was the same for me when I approached then, you know, late 16th century music, and I was like, okay, how does this work? And the idea was, again, what I said before, was coming with my mentality and trying to extrapolate an improvisational language from printed music, which is quite hard, you know, because uh, one of the main issues when you approach the music is, first of all, how much of this was improvised? Is this a transcribed improvisation? If so, why would they do that? Why would they write an improvisation? Do you know mm-hmm. what I
0: mean? Yeah.
2: There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of questions because when you learn jazz, it's so easy. You just put on a CD. You could do it completely by ear without having to read one single written note. Um, so imagine that we don't have we did never had a recording of say Charlie Parker, you know, the inventor of modern jazz in the 1940s. We don't have a recording of him. But we have a few transcriptions of his solos, which we do, actually. There is a book called The Omnibook with all his solos transcribed. And then we have some reviews of people that went to listen to him talking about his sound, talking about his time. Would we have an idea of what it sounded like? Zero, like nothing, in terms of his tone, in terms of his phrasing, in terms of his, the way he sits on the time, the swing, just the, so many things that are so important we have no idea, right? And he
0: probably didn't even do exactly what was written down anyway,
2: So, yeah, I mean, you know, we don't, yeah, exactly.
0: That really ties in with this whole thing, you bringing ostinato basslines because you do have the freedom. It, it's just this one baseline, a sequence of notes, right? Notes, chords. Yeah. yeah. And then you have that freedom to go with that however you want in that moment,
2: right? Yeah, that's the idea. And it's very hard to know how good people were back then, because if I compare it to playing standards, which is kind of the same idea with jazz nowadays, you know, so we have a core of standard songs, which are usually songs from the 1920s, 30s, from, you know, musical theater, most of the times. And everyone knows them, right? So the great thing about that is that you can go into a jam session in whatever, Singapore, and say, let's play Autumn Leaves. If it's a jazz musician, you will know that tune. And I like to imagine that that was the same thing back then, you know, that everyone was going like, let's do a in D minor one, two, three, four, you know, and (laughs) you didn't need anything else. I'm, you know, I'm sure, I, I think, you know. Yeah. So the the question is, I when I started studying this stuff, I want my dream was to create a quartet or a quintet where we could just go in and play standards. Cool. So, and being able to hold to actually do a performance, if you know what I mean, because yeah. if you get a good group playing standards nowadays, you know they can they can stretch the forms, they can create incredible shapes and macro structures of improvisation just with the standard, without even talking about it. But the idea of like, okay, guys, we're going to do a pasamezzo Antico. Take it. And then we have a 10 minutes long piece, which is interesting. So when I, when I was doing my master's, I, start, I, I started running a jam session in the early music department on Saturday morning. On <laughs> <Where we laughs> Saturday would, morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, very nerdy early music time.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> 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 Where we would get together with whoever wanted, you know, and we would just do that kind of jam on these bass lines. Um, and we did it for a while, but uh, then it never really, you know, it was interesting. I still have this dream one day, but uh, I don't know if there are many musicians out there that are interested and uh, that are uh, that their improvisational skills are so developed that they could actually do that.
1: Yeah, it would probably take time. Yeah, it would probably take like a, a big investment on everybody's part.
2: For sure, and I mean, you know, I obviously I played many years with Arpeggiata, which is obviously a group that has quite a lot of improvisers. Um, yeah, say someone like Doron, you know, the cornetto player, Dor Sherwin. He's probably one of the best improvisers I know for that musical language. A lot of this music, both in jazz and in early music, came from dance music. Right. So a lot of the dances, when they were still functional and played for dances, you need a very different thing. In fact, you only need really groove. <laughs> I think when you're playing for dancers, you could literally play the same three notes for the whole night. As long as it's really groovy, nobody's going to complain. <laughs> you know, if, you're, if you start doing fancy shit, but your time is not great. Forget about it. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I always feel like I move whenever I hear a really good ostinato that, you know, like especially those, uh, you sent a couple of, you know, check that um, for us to listen to and there yeah, are a couple of them I really just, I can't not move and just like bop along to it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it sh- I think it should be like that again because they're very much connected to dance, you know.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, I I'm not sure I'm like the best at playing grooves all the time, but I I grew up as a dancer, and so because of that, it's influenced how I see playing dance music. Absolutely, feeling it, and
2: I think that's incredibly valuable, you know, for you, you know, without even you know, because it's in you. Because you, I think you see rhythm in a different way, and especially if it's connected to your body movements. Oh my God, it's like it's a whole different story.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also, like, as because I grew up as an Irish dancer, like, that's the whole, like, you do um, both the soft shoe stuff and the hard shoe and then the rhythm that comes from that. And then also, I really have a very clear um, experience of uh, when people are playing music for you, when live musicians are playing, if they don't have the groove exactly right, you feel like you can't, you have to stay in the air longer than you would actually stay in the air Hmm. or... Um, So the feeling of like the inevitability of the up and the down of the jumping and then the landing from the jump and that that needing to be at the right time.
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. And I mean, you know, again, tell me, because you obviously come from this experience uh, and then you are playing Baroque music. Um, Yeah. Like, is there such thing as dance music that is not groovy and in tempo for you? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I've never thought about it. Um, I don't know. I guess it depends on how you define groove
2: yeah. or tempo. I guess you know
1: or tempo. Um, it really is um, something about uh, feeling, feeling maybe the inevitability of a beat. Yeah, um, that as a dancer, whenever I'm dancing, I need to feel when that beat is going to happen and it needs to happen at a time that my body can naturally do it
2: that's very interesting what you're saying there because this is how i feel a lot when i improvise as well and um i find that that kind of knowledge or it's actually more of a sensation the sensation of where the beat is i was even talking to a great drummer a friend of mine once said is like you know, talking about playing in odd meters and complex rhythms that are not so necessarily something that we have in ourselves because our culture doesn't really have it. You know, we can develop it, but, you know, he says the whole idea, like when you when you become really good at playing in four in jazz, there is a freedom because you can sense where the rhythm is. You can sense the pulse. You know where it's going to land. You know, it's a, it's a feeling. It's not that you're counting. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the idea was to develop in the same way. But, you know, it was very interesting because sometimes playing with early music people and imp- I'm improvising a solo and there is a rhythm section and they do that thing, which, class- which Baroque musicians do, which they follow. And I hate it so much because <laughs> it totally throws me off in the same way that you were saying it, you know? It's like, for me, I need to have a reference that I know it's there no matter what because that gives me the freedom to push and pull because I think there is a beauty when you're improvising in the way where do you put your notes where exactly I'm sure it's the same with dancing you know it's just a feeling of like if you know what where you are where everything is you know how to create tension within your speech
1: yeah Yeah, it's it's a different skill, because it's not that it's not, it definitely is a useful skill to be able to follow as an orchestral musician, you really have to be like entirely great at being exactly with everybody else you're with, right? Like, it just is a different skill. Yeah, that's super
2: hard. And I mean, for me, that's the funny thing. For me, when I started playing with Baroque people, I was like, sitting there going, "The fuck are you guys doing? (laughs) Sorry, I shouldn't swear. (laughs) Um, I was like, why is everyone slowing down? And how can you all slow down at the same time? Why are you all slowing down at the end of a sentence? I mean, for, for me, there is all this stuff which I didn't have. It's language. Yeah. Again, this is all vocabulary. It's a different language. You just like, you don't discuss this stuff. You all know that when you get to a cadence, you slow down in this kind of way. And for me, I was like jazz, you know, it's like you sit there, the tempo starts. Like literally, unless the house, you know, unless the roof falls down and you all die, the tempo doesn't change. or at least it shouldn't you know what i mean it shouldn't if you're a good band like once a bass player starts like literally you could see people dying even if you hit the really wrong tempo that was so hard to get jazz musicians to change a tempo it's so hard because all their life they train not to change tempo (laughs)
0: yeah yeah that's so interesting (laughs) i guess because it's just like in the body so much that you you then just you go, because um, I guess that connection, it's not such a visual thing. Um, it's more of a you're, you're he- hearing and you're feeling the the flow of the music, I guess.
2: Yeah, and I mean, as a bass player, imagine, you know, as a jazz bass player. I mean, nowadays, there's a lot of virtuals of bass playing, but traditionally, jazz musician, a bass player, plays quarter notes. That's it. Mm, yeah. So they spend years just doing... Dum, 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 just playing quarter notes, which seems terribly boring, but it's actually amazing how much you can do just with chord notes
0: yeah yeah and just the same with ostinato bass lines too I mean it's the same usually same four notes over and over and there's so much you can do with that just like a yeah. uh, supposedly boring you know jazz bass player um, and also because you we know that you play a lot of instruments um, and there there are a lot of instruments that can make up these bass teams when you're playing these ostinato bass lines, um, do you have like a favorite instrument for a particular type of bass line that you like to play? or Because like, you play percussion and keyboard instruments. How does that kind of change depending on the bass well, line? Well, I mean,
2: wh- when I started doing research on this historical stuff, obviously <clears throat> harpsichord was kind of a little bit the only choice for me in a way because it's the instruments in which... You know, first of all, it's an historical instrument, you know, that existed at the time. The piano didn't really. Um, and where you can kind of do everything, you know what I mean? You can accompany yourself and and learn the melodic language as much as, you know. Do, the
1: harmonic yeah, and the, the rhythmic and the, yeah.
2: Doing those, you know, is the it's always easy because it's the, well, it's not easy, but it's the one that allows you to, um, you know, to do everything and to understand it more.
0: As Francesco just mentioned, pianos as we know them today didn't exist in the 16th and 17th centuries. Instead they used harpsichords. Both harpsichords and pianos use a keyboard, so they look similar, but the strings inside the harpsichord body are plucked, whereas on a piano they're hit, which completely changes the sound of the instrument. This also means the player has to use different techniques to change the loudness and resonance of the instrument. So here's some bark played on harpsichord. and here's some Chopin played on the modern piano.
2: On the harpsichord i can do all these lines you know but single lines on harpsichord it's like they're dead pretty quick unless you play something really fast and flashy which is like wow cool you know because the fact that you can't change the dynamic of the single notes you know you can change articulation of course but first of all it's very rarely going to cut through i have to say this is again me observing how to improvise on a harpsichord in a context, say, with Arpeggiata, because I did play quite a lot of solos, you know, in the concerts, there was moments where I would improvise some solos. And first of all, you can't hear anything usually (laughs) because (laughs) a single note harpsichord is very loud, very close, and then it just dies right away and you can't hear it, like, three meters away. It's weird, you know? So then if you that's the other issue when you play piano you can play a melody on your right hand and you can comp with your left hand but you can comp quiet and play loud in the right hand you can't do that on the harpsichord if you play three notes in your left hand they're going to be three times louder than your right hand because yeah. the volume is all the same you know what i mean
1: yeah because that's how the instrument works. that's
2: how yeah. the instrument works right there is no dynamic in the same way that the piano has dynamics so it's harder but i figure out ways to do it you know because it's not that there is no dynamic. You can create dynamic on harpsichord by adding notes, basically, on top of each other. It's the only way to do it, really. But it's hard to do it with single lines, obviously. So you have to think more polyphonically. You have to think more kind of chordally, you know, to a certain extent. I also tried a little bit on the organ. I think for many mm-hmm. things, I prefer the organ to the harpsichord. I think it blends a lot better with a lot of Baroque instruments than the harpsichord does. (laughs) I I love playing organ with strings, you know, because it's just like adds a bit of a cushion around it. You know, the harpsichord is always like trying to cut through, I find, you know, I just I find it very imposing. I like it for more groovy, like, you know, because it can be extremely rhythmical and very precise. So I I hear that. I like that sound. You know, it's almost like more like a strummy type of sound.
1: Yeah because it's a plucked instrument yeah
2: and you know it's a quite aggressively plucked instrument as well <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> yes <laughs> at least on the guitar you can strum but then you can also do these beautiful little arpeggios on the harpsichord i don't know i mean <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah you can it's different
2: you can yeah. but it's always going to sound quite harsh from close you know i always find it hard to again you know this is my limitation i'm not saying that no one can do it you know it's a. Uh, I just, you
1: find it challenging i find it
2: hard especially when yeah, you're surrounded yeah. by beautiful plucky sounds yeah. you know yeah. just, like, just...
1: so maybe harpsichord is great for the more dancey chacona ones and then you also sent um us an uh a piece uh, marini that oh is, i love that like, beautiful and oh. slow i love it yeah, so much it's, oh. it's, amazing. <sighs> it's like just like one of the most beautiful pieces ever and that one i feel like is great with organ
2: yeah for sure Yeah, and it's so simple, that piece, you know, and I actually played on on my piano solo album, I played a version of it, but I just improvise around the theme, the main melody, which is more the Lament bass line or whatever, Passacaglia, whatever you want to call it, uh, because that's such a a universal, you know, thing that still exists even in modern music, it's like from whatever sixteenth century to radiohead. You know, it's just a, a theme that I think everyone can relate to. That's probably why we like it so much still. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's why
1: it survived. We talked about the Pasakalia baseline in Julia Wedman's episode. It's a great Ostinato baseline for sad characters in music and is sometimes referred to as the Lament baseline.
2: And I think that's the interesting thing in general about these bass lines is that just there's so many of them that are still kind of universal and we still kind of relate to, you know, especially that one. I think the, the Passacaglia bass line and some of the Passamezzos, they have this kind of folky quality, which you still hear in a lot of traditional music nowadays as well. Um, so, you know, I think, I think the great thing about that is that it also allows you to... Um, make it more contemporary and say something that it's more for us. And also that I can say something that also talks other languages. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Because obviously when I play yeah. it on the piano, I'm not trying to sound Baroque because I don't have the sound in my ears with the piano, I just what comes out is my pianistic style, which is a mix of a lot of different things, of course, but it's me now, you know, after having studied and learned all these different types of music. Um, so yeah, I think that's the beauty of it, you know, the ability of taking something that is kind of really old, but still making it sound like it talks to you and it makes sense nowadays, even if you know. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Can you give Can you give us some examples of where you found um, one, maybe that baseline, maybe a different one in a lot of different places?
2: Uh, in contemporary music, you mean?
1: Sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, baselines like that, you know. So the if we, if we want to talk about the Passacaglia bass that kind of idea. That's something that has existed for such a long time and never ceased to exist. I mean, there is literally, I can think of, of a Beam song that has that progression, of a Radiohead song that has that progression, or like My Funny Valentine starts like that, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. this chromatic lament, chromatic descending line, which is obviously something that really speaks to us in a dramatic way, I guess.
1: Yeah, it elicits an emotional, like physical response it's like yeah. something
2: there is sorrow i mean i guess my funny valentine is not that sad but there is a melancholic <laughs> element to that melody yeah. and the beginning right yeah. and I,
1: I don't know if anybody would be like that's a really happy song no, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it's not like uh, remember me but forget my fate you know maybe it's not as dramatic no. as that
0: <laughs> what francesco is referring to here is dido's lament from henry purcell's opera dido and Aeneas. This descending ostinato bassline has continued to be used throughout the centuries. Here's a bit of Dido's Lament, which was written in the 1680s. <music>
1: Here's My Funny Valentine, written in 1937, which also has this bass line. In this recording, you can hear the wind instruments holding long notes that play the descending line.
0: You're my funny valentine
3: Sweet comic
0: valentine With my heart. And here's exit music by Radiohead, written in 1997, which is also based on this ostinato bass line.
3: Wake from your sleep. The drive. Your tears today We escape
2: We escape I used to play with a group here. Um, There's not much early music in Ireland, but we had a small quartet for a while, you know, with uh with some people here they were playing a lot of actually diminution and ostinato repertoire and we had this joke where we were playing um a guitar chacon i think it was i don't remember if it was corbetta or one of these italian uh, composers for guitar where it literally sounds like a pop song i can look it up and send it to you it's just like yeah please and the, all the sevens and the way he just plays these open arpeggios on the guitar is like literally sounds like pop music And we had this joke that we were trying to find how many songs we could sing over that chord progression. Like
0: a mashup. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
2: Like No Woman, No Cry, you know, Beatles songs, all kinds of stuff. And they all fit perfectly (laughs) over (laughs) that 17th century guitar arpeggio.
1: Francesca was right. This guitar piece he was referring to was by Italian 17th century composer Francesco Corbetta. And it definitely sounds like a pop song.
0: And here's Bob Marley's No Woman No Cry, which uses the same chord progressions as the corbetta you just heard.
2: I think as well, you know, even at the time, a lot of this stuff came from the street, probably, you know, or from folk music. I mean, especially with the guitar, it seems that it was like, I mean, also they already a Passacaglia, It's like pasacalle, you know, it's like from the street, <laughs> basically. That's what, you know, even the word says it. And yeah. the guitar being an instrument which was obviously a. St- a straight instruments of stable boys, you know what I mean? Yeah, the whole yeah. chordy stuff, you know, the whole alphabet for the guitar that's literally like what I learned when I was 16 at the beach is the same thing. You have chord symbols for songs and you learn to play songs. That's exactly what was happening already in the seventies. century, you know?
1: I mean, yeah, I um, actually at one point ended up doing, because you know how through the years in university, you have to write lots of research papers when you live in the States. So one time I did a research paper about the histories of the origins of the Chacon and the Passacaglia and how those two um, sort of lines happened and did they converge and did they not? And um, it was really interesting because it, exactly what you were saying is true, that it like sort of they're different sort of they become the same sometimes people use them interchangeably generally chacones are major generally pascalias are minor whatever they do have sort of different origins but the chacona is um originally comes from spain ish and it um at at least a couple of points in history was banned for being too sexy as a dance like it it came both of them sort of came from the street and um the authorities at least a couple times uh, at least with the chacona I'm not sure with the pasacalleya that one maybe is a little too sad to be too sexy but the um chacona was banned at least a couple of times because um yeah inappropriate
2: yeah I think as well with the with the chacona because you know the really funky chacona stuff it's again probably spanish and it seems that most of the Chaconas with this are actually published in Italy. There's not that many anywhere else. It's quite interesting, even though it's supposed to be a Spanish thing. But also, let's not forget that all the whole south of Italy was Spanish at that time. You know, so Naples and you know Sicily, all of the era was all under Spanish domination. Obviously, there is a big element there, which has got to do with the the more, uh, I think, certain rhythms that comes from the Caribbean and the colonies. And it's a whole other topic, obviously, we can talk about, which would be interesting. Yeah. You know, because it's something that I'm researching a little bit uh, at the moment, you know, because I'm kind of curious to know where does they come, you know, where does it come from? Because in my research, obviously, and in the work that I do with my partner, Rhiannon, you know, we obviously look a lot at... Uh, the more 19th century hybrid how how do you say that hybridization you know of european yeah. sounds and you know enslaved people and also natives you know uh in the americas in the caribbean area especially which seems to be the most fertile ground you know for this kind of stuff but then i think that we know so little about what happened before you know because i'm sure a lot of this stuff is actually much older than we think it is in terms of like this cultures mixing you know and you know in in late renaissance spanish music there is so much crazy syncopated stuff like really crazy stuff really complex music that has a lot of this really jumpy quality and has a lot of alternations of threes and twos you know which nowadays we assume it's a west african concept but does it really come from there, or you know, is it something that has existed in Western music too from before? Maybe do they connect even from an earlier time? You know, like a lot of the research that I'm doing now is much more looking at the Mediterranean in the Middle Ages as connect connector between Africa, and North Africa, and Europe, right? Yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know the answer though. <laughs> I'm trying to. It's a, it's a lot to look into, you know, but
1: um, yeah. And of course it does with what you were just talking about the whole um, the whole social history of colonization and what that um, did is also a good reminder that you, you can't be really extrapolated from the rest of what's happening with humanity and how that's.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. What's
1: happening there either.
2: Because just the other day, I was discovering a lot of these filancicos, you know, from the Renaissance, which were actually written already in in Central America or in Mexico. Yeah, Mexico. I yeah. guess that's North America, officially. But, yeah, uh, officially. <laughs> but, and, you know, I, I was really fascinated because I, there is this repertoire, obviously, again, a bit digressing, but talking about some of the research we've been doing with Rihanna about minstrel music, you know, which is a very interesting Phenomenon of real mixing cultures, apart from all the obviously the old racial issues with it, you know, but the fact of where the musics come together, you know, uh, in a way that is the real first kind of creation of American, North American, you know, or United States music. Um, But looking at this repertoire of all of these songs from the Renaissance that are sort of written in this maybe happy African-speaking Spanish language, you know, some of this repertoire, there is some crazy stuff, which is in a way quite relatable to the whole idea of minstrelsy, you know, in in the the bad side of it, as in let's make fun of basically enslaved people trying to speak Spanish. Uh, And let's write some beautiful polyphony about it with some really funky rhythms, you know. So how do you look at that? And I, I read about these villancicos, which were written in Mexico, and they were basically used as religious propaganda to for the con- conversion, you know, of enslaved people to Catholicism. So a lot of them were to do with the nativity, and let's go and see baby Jesus. And they were performed apparently outside of the church in the mornings of important festivities, and they had different languages that they were written in. Some of them were written in uh, what is it called? Nahuatl? This, like one of the original languages of the people from around that area of Mexico. Some of them were in this, they're called Guineo. So presuming they were from Guinea people, you know, from West Africa. And the text is incredible in one of these. It says something like, even though this child looks a bit white, is going to be our friend. This is what the... <laughs> the five enslaved people are saying let's go and see this baby jesus and let's go but let's hope that the people from angola are not coming because they're too ugly and black it literally says that
0: holy
3: shit oh no (laughs) i was
2: like oh my god what is this and just trying to understand what is the mentality behind this also of saying the other people are bad you know because it's a It's an aspect that we forget a lot about when we talk about enslaved people. We just think West Africa. It's almost like a geographical area of immense, you know, and so many cultures, languages, religions, you know, so much stuff that got mashed up together. And just even trying to come around that idea of how all these different groups interacted and how they were forced to be together, you know. So I don't know. It's interesting.
0: Now, I will just ask one more question because I um, want to know if you have um, a favorite bass line or the weirdest bass line that you've found in your career thus far.
2: Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Lament, I, I always play that. I, I've written pieces, like my some of my piano pieces, that are inspired on that bass line. I, it's something that I obviously, it's such a scope, again, because it connects with us even nowadays. Um I quite enjoy playing in the chacona, you know, the funky one, just because rhythmically it opens up to a lot of different things, and you can create, uh, you can hear different things, you know, in a different way. I mean, I think I should. I think Purcell is such a great example of incredible genius at writing over ostinato bass lines. It's uh, you know, there's just so many examples of. First of all, he takes the baseline, line, but he makes it always a little bit different. It's like his own version of it that is an extra bar, or the cadence is not where you think it is, or it kind of goes a bit further down than you think it does. And and that's already genius in itself, you know, in the way of making the... You know it's that baseline, but it's not exactly like... The standard version of it and then the stuff that he writes on top of it oh my god you know it's just like the never-ending invention i mean even something as obvious as that is lament you know it's like the way he orchestrates the harmony in that piece oh my god it's so beautiful and so doesn't come twice the same you know the way the strings are playing all the suspensions and the chords it's just it really shows how much you can do with simple material i think that's really the genius you know where you can see Actually, the material is simple, but what you can do is so sophisticated and so beautiful and complex, you know. So I don't know um, if I've answered any of your questions. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <Talk> about... <laughs> um,
0: we do have one final question. Uh, is there a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you're jealous of? Which is maybe a bit hard because, considering you play pretty much all the instruments, but...
2: But not really, though. Do I... <laughs> Yeah, that's a really tricky question. Let me think about it for one second. I have a bit of a soft spot for Corelli Opus 5 sonatas. I don't know why. Because, mm. again, it's a little bit outside of the language that I've studied a lot, but there is something... I what do you, know.
1: What about it do you do you love?
2: I think, yeah, it's a tricky one. I think uh, I, I like the harmonic style a lot, you know, and the way... Yeah, especially the minor ones, you know, where just gods with all this like nice dissonance, and I think, I I, you know, all these dissonances and all this stuff that's quite dramatic. I don't know. (laughs) I do love that harmonic style. I mean, having said that, you know, there's a lot of earlier stuff that I love too. You know, I guess maybe it would be great to be able to sing some of the most beautiful Monteverdi stuff. (laughs) I could probably, I would love to be able to do that. I think. Yeah. But yeah.
1: Great. Um and how can our listeners best find you support you listen to your stuff?
2: Um well I'm online all over the place. Uh, I have a website yep. francescoturizi.com. Um where there is most of my music. Um I wouldn't say go to Spotify even though I'm there too, but as you know Spotify is evil. For musicians, um,
1: yeah, it's not the greatest. Yeah, chorus. yeah. So tell tell us if people um, because we really do encourage our listeners to support musicians mm. by uh, purchasing their music. What's the best way of purchasing your music so that you get the most?
2: Uh, there would be Bandcamp um, money. So I have a Great. Bandcamp page where I have all the music that I've released myself. There is a few other CDs that I there are mine as well, but they're not on my label. Um, so, but you can find them on Bandcamp Bandcamp too. Um, I think that's definitely the best option, at least of what I have. You know, again, the music Great. is available everywhere, but I think it's good to talk about it because I think a lot of people don't really know how bad Spotify is for yeah. musicians. You know, and I, I feel very conflicted about it because there is a part of me, obviously, that enjoys the fact of being able to, as a musician, as a researcher, to have all of this music yeah. at your fingertips. But yeah, so Bandcamp is good, and also with uh, my partner and Rihanna Giddens, we have a Patreon. Um, Great. which we started yep. since the quarantine. I guess a lot of people are doing that. And uh, we kind of, you know, we share it in the sense that we both put stuff together. We also put, put stuff individually, and uh, we put a lot of really nerdy stuff in it. <laughs> like. Yeah. Right. Uh, book recommendations you know the stuff that we've been reading we do also a series of videos called the instruments corner where we each talk about one of the instruments that we play for about 10-15 minutes with a video and show how it works uh so yeah it's it's a bit of a com and then we also have performances and streams we have q a's um all kinds of stuff but uh, it's aimed definitely at nerdy people <laughs> that are <Yeah>. interested <laughs> in all the stuff we're interested in
0: great yeah awesome well we'll put all of those links in our show notes for people to find so cool. great well thank you so much for joining us it's been such a pleasure to chat with you thanks so much for tuning into outside the music box we hope you enjoyed our chat with francesco
1: teresi if so please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and tell all your friends about it. It's time for some new reviews and ratings, so if you haven't done this already, we'd really appreciate it. Also, big shout-out to Joanna Neuschatz for her help with editing. She also really appreciates your donations via our PayPal, which is paypal.me musicboxconcerts. It's super easy to donate, and these donations help keep the podcast running in lieu of advertising. And we'd
0: also love to hear from you if you have any questions or want to share music that you love you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on facebook and instagram at musicboxconcerts, concerts and twitter at outside music box write in with comments or questions
1: that you have and we'll get back to you in the show notes we've included links to three spotify playlists one specifically for the pieces in this episode and the others for all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast so far However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists, as we just talked about. The best way to support Francesco is going to his website, his band camp, or Patreon page, all of which we've linked in the show notes. He's got some really great albums for sale and fun extras both just with him and also with his partner, Rhiannon Giddens. See you next time outside the music box.